Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. Hi, guys. Pete and Rich here. The Boys in the Band podcast is back. But before we get into the main show, we've just got to tell you about a cool deal from our sponsors, Beer 52. Yep, they've come up with a great deal for listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. So if you fancy a free case of eight craft beers from Beer 52, just go to beer52.com forward slash band. And all you have to do is cover the postage cost of $5.95. And as well as that free case, you also get signed up to Beer 52's Beer Club, the largest in the world with over 150,000 active members. And each month, members are sent a case with a different theme, as well as a magazine and a snack. You can, of course, pause or cancel at any time, but it's well worth trying out. So head over to beers52.com forward slash band for that offer. And we hope you enjoy the upcoming pod. Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Richard Gallagher. And I'm Peter Smith. And we're back. We are. We've had a bit of an extended dry January, but we've been busy putting together some more interviews with some top indie stars from the 2000s. We've got some great ones lined up coming your way. Yeah, we absolutely loved doing these interviews last year and um, you know, hopefully you've been enjoying them too. We got an amazing email from a young lady called Amina who uh, got in touch uh, during our dry January, as Rich called it, um, to say how much she's loving the stories of these bands, reminiscing about that time. But also um, sort of sharing that you know around that time she wasn't living in central London, she wasn't living in Sheffield, she wasn't living in any of these sort of hotspots that we've spoken about where... Uh, this, these scenes were popping up and um, yeah, it's really interesting hearing how she was you know, on forums and on Flickr going through and checking the photos from various gigs and how that sort of gave her a bit of connection to, to um, the people going to see these bands and how listening to the podcast has brought some, back some nice memories for her, which is um, yeah, lovely to hear, really. And actually, she dropped a line into the email where she said it would be great to hear from fans with similar experiences. So, yeah, do please get in touch with your stories. You can obviously contact us on our social media channels or if you email us at boysinthebandpod at gmail.com, that'll come through too. And, um, yeah, it'd be great to hear more from you in terms of what you're thinking of the podcast, but also your memories of that time. Yeah, definitely would. A great email to receive that. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Mina. Hopefully she and you all like this one too because we're back with a band who dominated the charts. Uh, as we say in the podcast, they were all over various TV shows at the time too. It's the Pigeon Detectives frontman, Matt Bowman. And here's a clip of what's coming up with Matt discussing how the band went all in on their dream. We're all from real working class backgrounds. You know, we're from a mining village, um, Rothwell, and no one from Rothwell gets to go on tour, gets to be in a band. So 
we felt a little bit like we had the weight of everybody back home on our shoulders and you know we wanted to take stories back and you know if we were given an option to take the red pill or the blue pill we wanted to take both of the pills and just you know properly properly go for it Yeah, great chatting to Matt. As he mentions there, they're a band who really appreciate what music has given them the chance to do. And he takes us through the Pigeon Detective story from writing hits like Take a Back and I'm Not Sorry to some of their best live shows. Yeah, the one with the former lead zoner, Massimo Cellino, doesn't quite fall into that category, but that's a great story to listen out for. Uh, and great to hear that the tour he mentioned in our chat has gone public now and they'll be hitting the road in September. But before that, have a listen to the pod. Remember, do leave us a review or email in like Amina did and let us know what you think of our chat with Matt Bowman from the Pigeon Detectives. This week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Matt Bowman from the Pigeon Detectives. How's it going, Matt? Good, thank you. How are you, chaps? Yeah, yeah we're very good. well, thanks, mate. Yeah, we're good. Matt, we're, this is the first podcast back after our hiatus over Christmas and winter so it's uh, great to kick off with uh, a man such as yourself and to talk about a band like the Pigeon Detectives who are obviously you know a band that we loved and uh, really a, a really top band from that era that we talk about on this podcast as well so really good to have you on oh, thanks for coming thank on. You. That's a great interviewing technique that start with a load of compliments and a bit of flattery and what could go wrong. <laughs> exactly well we'll weave a few more in and uh, keep you on side hopefully throughout the next uh, half hour 45 yeah. minutes. Um, Matt, we kick off the podcast with a sound check. It's three quick fire questions just to get us going. And the first one is always, whereabouts are you? I'm at my mum's. Yeah, one of the many uh, perils of lockdown. So my wife's actually uh, recently had a kidney transplant. So um, because I can't really put my life on hold at the minute. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm staying at my mum's during the week. Private COVID test on a Friday, then home for the weekend. Hence the uh, random cow decor. <laughs> yeah very nice background indeed so so where, whereabouts is 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 your mum's home is it up, up in leeds uh do you know it's embarrassingly near to my house so yeah it's in leeds and i think she lives three streets away so yeah a bit nice. of a mummy's home, home comforts <laughs> um exactly. second up in the sound check matt is uh what are you listening to at the moment any particular artist you're into um do you know I'm such uh, a musical kind of, you know, yeah, I struggle to discover new bands. So I just have to keep going back to the same old bands. So rather than boy with the obvious Oasis, Strokes, etc. I mean, I'm really digging the new Biffy Clyro album at the minute. Um, I'm dipping back into Backerable Motorcycle Club, that kind of uh, really dark mm-hmm. guitar kind of sound. So yeah, probably Biffy's new album. And yeah, just revisiting the BRMC back catalogue. Nice, good choices. Yeah. Um, third question in the soundcheck, Matt, is uh, usually about gigs. Um, but what's the latest then with the Pigeon Detectives tour? Because you know it's scheduled for May, scheduled for October. I don't know what gigs, gigs, <laughs> gigs. Are they just something we used to write about? Exactly. History yeah. textbooks. Distant memory. Um, gigs, gigs, gigs. To be fair, uh, uh, we've got some big gig news next week, um, just in time for payday. Um, yeah, I mean, we had a sold-out tour all lined up for last summer. It was cancelled. We rearranged it for last uh, autumn. It was cancelled. We re- rearranged it for this spring. Cancelled. So that's three sold-out tours on the bounce that have been cancelled. Um, but, yeah, it looks like we're going to get to get out on the road and uh, play some songs this autumn. 
God willing. Yeah, <laughs> an appropriate thing to say. I mean, that's how desperate we are to get out and play some gigs at the minute. Yeah, double fingers crossed for that because I know you're down for some festival bills in the summer, aren't you? And uh, that Shine On weekender as well later in the year. Feeder, the Coral, Las Vegas, who we've got on the podcast next week, um, are on that bill as well. But yeah, it'd be great to see you guys yeah. sort of headlining your own own shows after all those performances. We've got some great festivals coming up, and I look at the bills and I think brilliant. And I know the festival organisers, I think that's going to be brilliant. I've got this kind of weird um, will they, won't they happen thing. I'm just trying not to get too excited. So if they happen, awesome. And we've got a big long list of festivals to play. If they don't happen, it won't come as a surprise to me. And uh, you know, on to the next year. Yeah, absolutely. You come to expect it at, at this time. But uh, yeah, as, as Pete says, double fingers crossed, everything crossed that we do get back to these gigs soon. We really, really need them. But let's uh, let's jump back then, Matt. So it'll be 15 years ago this autumn that you guys recorded your debut album, Wait For Me, back in 2006 and then came out the following year, May 2007. Uh, so amazing how time flies. But but take us back to to the start. You know, how did the band come together and, and how was that initial journey into recording that debut album way back then? So um, we're all childhood friends. We all went to the same primary school, all went to the same secondary school, all went to the same uh, sixth form college. Um, we were all superstar footballers, or at least we thought we were. Uh, quite obvious we were never going to make it. So we all sat down, learnt guitar. You know, none of us were lookers. None of us were particularly popular. None of us were very good at talking to girls. So we just hid ourselves away in um, Oliver's bedroom. Let's play guitar. You know, a couple of three chords, started doing some Oasis covers, and uh, yeah, the rest was history. Got very lucky, very, um, yeah, we were very lucky. We still are lucky, to be honest. But um, yeah, there was a lot of good bands around when we were around, and, you know, we just somehow managed to rise to the top and get that record deal that every band dreams of getting. Yeah. So you mentioned Oasis there. Were there any other inspirations around that time as you were, you were growing up, as you were forming and writing your own material? So we had the obvious influences, um, which were like the Beatles, the Smiths, Stone Roses, anything that was kind of easy to play on three chords that we could learn. But I think the band that made us want to be the band that we became was probably the Strokes. Um, you know, we quite often got called New Yorkshire, um, as in New York and Yorkshire. Uh, but yeah, we were just strutting around Leeds in skinny jeans, Converse, leather jackets, when everybody else was still kind of just doing that cold play Oasis type thing. Um, so yeah, we, we stood out like a sore thumb. You know, we could never leave the house unless we were as uh, you know five of us. You know, we'd go shopping together, <laughs> we'd go drinking together, we'd go on. You know, we'd do everything together in, in those leather jackets, tight jeans, Converse. So we stuck out like a sore thumb, and people started to be like, you know, who's that? Who are they? Who do they fucking think they are? And then, you know, before you know it, you know, you know we were in a band and we were doing all right. How did your songwriting develop? As you as you say, sort of learning fairly easy songs, fairly easy covers. How did you then build that songwriting uh, into what, what formed the debut album? So we just used to get in a rehearsal room on a Sunday. We all had full-time jobs. Um, you know, some, one, some of us were data inputters, some of us were booking driving tests. You know, I was a recruitment consultant. Um, we had really mundane jobs, but we were weekend rock stars. So, you know, we did go out on a Friday night, Saturday night. Um, you know, we would wake up Sunday, uh, after, you know, grab the guitars and go rehearse all day Sunday so it was just about spending time together and we'd rehearse for eight hours on a Sunday sincerely we'd probably rehearse for two of that the other six hours we'd play audience takeaways sat chatting about the weekend um you know we we rehearsed with some really great 
bands that went on to have bigger record deals than us, but just fucked it up for one reason or another. And they really were hardworking bands, you know, the likes of 10,000 Things, um, you know, we raced in the same space as The Cribs, you know, you know, kind of similar succession is still around to this day, but as a band, they worked 10 times harder than us. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we were kind of just there for the sake of being there, hanging out, enjoying each other's company with our instruments and, you know, we'd just start chucking chords around, Ollie would have a lick, I'd throw some lyrics down, Jimmy'd play his drums, suddenly it sounded like a song, so Dave picked his bass up and um, I'm probably giving Ollie a bit, bit of a disservice there. Ollie was kind of the driving force musically, you know, all the ideas in the early days stemmed from Ollie. Um, but yeah, as a band, we just picked our instruments up, put our own bit to it, and we had a song. We put 13 songs on the first album and we only had 14 to choose from. <laughs> we, <were that. laughs> well, we went into the studio to record the record uh, and we only had nine songs. So the, the record level booking is in the stu- you know, studio spaces between recording sessions and it, like, you know, you're three songs short, lads, you need to come up with some songs. And I remember in those sessions, we came up with Take a Back, our biggest ever selling single, um, Stop or Go, one of my favourite songs on the first record. And I think we came up with maybe Caught in Your Trap. Or maybe it was a B-side. Um, I could sing it, but I can't remember the name of the song. But yeah, two two classic Pigeon songs came out of those kind of shit. We've got a record deal. We don't have enough songs for an album type sessions. It's amazing. Obviously, you know, it must be a bit of magic there because... You know, you're playing it down saying you guys weren't working as hard as some of the other bands, you know, leaving it to the last minute to write these big hits. But, you know, when Wait For Me came out, charted number three and it ended up having three top 20 singles on it. So really successful. So what do you remember? I mean, I'm looking for my mum's platinum disc. She usually has it on shirt. Don't forget that. Over 350,000 sales in the UK. Amazing. Brilliant. So, you know, what do you, you know, how good is that, you know, mates from school, forming a band and then just have the success? I mean, what do you remember about that buzz at that time around the band, but also, you know, your experience in the band at that time must have been so exciting. You didn't realise it was happening. Um, We had a management company that also put out the record. So we released our record independently. And um, I remember in order to go on tour with the Dirty Pretty Things, um, that was going to be one, oh, which is a bit of a Boys in the Band reference. So yeah, we yeah. went on tour with Al Barrett and the Dirty Pretty Things. Um, but we were all holding down full-time jobs. So our record label just put £10,000 into a bank account for us. So there you go, lads, that'll pay your rent for three months. You know, that'll put food on the table. Crack on. And it was kind of a now or never, right? Oh, like, right, let's quit our jobs. None of us like the jobs we're doing. It's not, you know, that's not the plan for the future. And then slowly but surely, bigger things started to happen. So while we were on tour, Steve Lamack gave us our first spin on the radio. When we came back off tour, Joe Wiley played us. Then these big things started to happen, but it's, it just started to feel normal because one little thing was bigger, slightly bigger than the thing that had come before, that thing had come before. And then, you know, before you know it, you're doing your own sold-out tour, playing Leeds Festival, and you do have to pinch yourself. You know, we had many moments on the back of the tour bus where we were saying, you know, it used to be things like, fucking all lads, we're actually doing it. Or is this really happening? Or, you know, kind of pinch yourself moments. But yeah, you do get caught up in it and not realise it's happening. It's only when you come back off a big tour and you have two weeks to yourself, you think, we're a, we're a, we're a band here. This is properly happening. Yeah. Must be like such a, such a hard thing to get your head around as well. Like you're going on these tours and like you say, getting played on the radio. But, but what about the, the touring days and having, you know, Obsessed fans and fans going mad for your, mad for your music, loving what you're doing. 
know, what's that like as, a, as the front man of the band, you know, receiving all that adulation? You know, were you embracing it? Did you shy away from it? What, what, what was your take on it at that time? We embraced it, mate. We were fucking <laughs> with it. Um, I mean, we had a bit of a reputation amongst other bands. Um, you know, we'd end up on other bands' tour buses and the tour manager, you know, be kicking us off on the motorway halfway down, you know, we'd be... Yeah, we we did we, we did all right in terms of embracing the rock and roll lifestyle and persona. Yeah, we certainly got a name for ourselves um, quite early on, which kind of stuck with us, to be fair. Um, you know, which we, we certainly can't live up to that reputation in our uh, you know in our elder years but um <laughs> we certainly embraced it once it was given to us but at the end of the day and i mean i don't mean this is a kind of a, a woe is me kind of statement but we're all from real working class backgrounds you know we're from a mining village um rothwell and no one from rothwell gets to go on tour gets to be in a band so we felt a little bit like we had the weight of everybody back home on our shoulders and you know we wanted to take stories back and you know, if we were given an option to take the red pill or the blue pill, we wanted to take both of the pills and just, you know, properly, properly go for it. That was the uh, end of the answer. I'm, I'm not giving you any specifics. So, <laughs> Matt, what's the maddest thing that's ever happened on tour? <laughs> so, Matt, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? Yeah, next question. <laughs> um, so I mentioned there, obviously, the album went in uh, or charted at number three, but that was despite being leaked a few weeks earlier on online, right? That was back in the day when, you know, it made a huge difference as well. Yeah, it got leaked. We sent it out to a reviewer. Um, you could try and do everything. You could watermark the records. Mm. You know, you could put secret notes in on certain seconds of certain tracks to identify who received that particular copy. But, you know, none of it made a difference. I mean, in reality, it cost us the number one. But um, what are you going to do? We had number three. Happy days. Yeah, not a bad start. And the second album, Emergency, comes out almost like a year to the day after the first one. Uh, that's extremely quick. Were there loads of songs? Oh, you suggested there weren't loads of songs ready to go. It was just a case, I guess, of trying to capitalise on that explosion that you guys made with the debut? There was zero songs. Hmm. Um, we had a little bit of an obsession with the Beatles, and they used to turn albums around, you know, especially in the early days, you know, an album every eight months, an album every yeah. ten months. Um, yeah. So we kind of got it into our head that... Um, you know, the first album came so easy, let's just write a second one. Um, it wasn't as much fun as writing the first. It was literally, you know, this is a job now. We have a deal to deliver. This record needs to be with the label by this date so we can get in the studio for this date, so we can release it on this date. And it literally was locking ourselves away in our rehearsal rooms. Doesn't really feel like why I started a band, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, all my other friends were you know, stood at a bus stop at seven in the morning going to work. So again, we had to kind of be appreciative of what we had, but the second album certainly didn't have the um, kind of spontaneous magic for me that the first one did. I was going to say the naivety of us as people wasn't in it as well. The first album, I mean, it was pretty much run, run, you know, it was written by a bunch of kids. We'd not seen anything of the world. By the second album, we'd been all over Europe to Japan, to America, um, we'd all just put deposits down on a house from the sales of the first record. So I just don't think it had that. But then again, that's the debut album syndrome, isn't it? You know, once you've uh, drunk from the chalice, uh, you know, you've seen behind the curtain, you, you kind of do lose that naivety. So you can only do your debut album once. And, um, and I, I stand by the songs on Emergency, but, you know, the process of writing music after the first album 
kind of diminished slightly for me. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always that, that tricky thing, isn't it? Fol- following up a, a lifetime's worth of material, sort of with, like you say, being chucked into a rehearsal space to write a second record. But, um, but yeah, some great tunes on there as well. You know, this is an emergency. Everybody wants me. You know, big, big favourites of mine. And you also, you work with Stephen Street, you know, really renowned producer at the time down at Mono Valley, another renowned studio. So I think it just sort of harks back to that idea of how how big it got for you guys. You know, you, you, you had such big success that now they were, you know, throwing you in this, uh, this, this big studio that Queen and Oasis and Manic Street Preachers have recorded in with, uh, you know, sort of the in producer at the time, Stephen Street. You've nailed it on the head. You know, we were well aware of that. You know, we knew that the last album Stephen Street had done was the Kaiser Chiefs. You know, we knew, we knew he'd recently been in with Graham Coxon, who's a big, you know, influence of ours, especially to the guitarists. Um, you know, we were going on Google and finding pictures of Oasis in the live room and kind of standing in the exact positions and holding the laptop up and going, no, cross a bit, cross a bit, taking pictures, you know. So we were in that studio as 100% tourists. We didn't feel like we legitimately should have been there. Um, we were there as tourists. We were, you know, following in the footsteps of giants. We were... Mm-hmm taking the pictures that we'd seen on the internet in the exact positions it was yeah it was ridiculous and we were working with Stephen Street you know he was telling us stories about Morrissey um who sounds like a nice guy um and you know you too and things like that I'm like what the fuck this guy what's he doing working with us so but it was good you know we got on really well with Stephen Street um and certainly the most um, if not the most decorated, and no, if not the most talented, because I wouldn't like to diminish the, the, the talent of anybody else we've worked with, he's certainly the most decorated producer. So it was a good experience. Well, on the back of that first album, though, Matt, you know, you said you were there sort of feeling a bit like tourists. Did you, did you feel like pretenders or did you feel like you belonged? Did you feel like you'd earned it? I think we've always felt like imposters, other than when we play live. Um, you know, we've never really succumbed to that London thing. You know, we've, we've always been outsiders when we've gone down to do any press in London. Um, you know, we never had a, uh, a kind of darling-esque relationship with the enemy um, because we didn't just we just didn't take any of the shit. You know, we're, we're kind of straight-talking northern lads, so we've always felt like imposters or we've always felt like outsiders other than when we're on stage playing live. And that's when we really kind of feel like we own everything, you know, all the opportunities we've been given we're actually deserving of. So you mentioned um, when you're talking about the recording studios there, obviously the huge bands that went before you guys in those those uh, places. What about your contemporaries? What bands were you into at that time? You know, who were you touring with that you really got on well with? We know you had like sort of the Twang and uh, Miles Kane's The Rascals supporting you at that, you know, huge Millennium Square show you did in 2008 in Leeds. Who, who were you into at the time? Do you know, we never really got mates with The Twang until a long time after Kind right. of both of our successes kind of not took a nosedive, but as a success started to peter out and we were no longer in competition with each other, that's when we became friends with the twang. That's when we kind of started being friendly with the enemy. You know, we've always been friends with the view because we shared a lot of um touring crew. So our sound engineer did them, our monitor engineer did did them. Um and I think they had a lot of the same characteristics of us in terms of you know working class lads from Dundee, couldn't quite believe the position they've been put in. So anytime us and the view got together, you know, both respective tour managers knew they were in for a, a rough 48 hours. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, bands wise, bands I was into, I, I loved the Cribs. Uh, you know, the Cribs were certainly my favourite band mm. 
for a long time. Um, we ended up having a bit of a spat with the Cribs, although it was a very one-sided spat. They were just, they lost their minds uh, about uh, over us and it was ridiculous. So I kind of stopped listening to the Cribs, which was a shame. Celevy. What happened? Um, I mean, it's a long story. I mean, the enemy were looking for a, a kind of good versus bad um, type story. And we're both from, you know, they're from Wakefield, which is 12 miles down the road from us. Mm. And uh, I think the enemy decided they were good and we were bad. And they were just trying to kind of pick fights in every interview that they did. You know, you know, Gary and Ryan were emailing me saying, we've just done this interview. You know, I can't believe the questions they were asking. You know, it's going to be contorted and, you know, they're going to write this and that. But just this is our actual opinion. It just got out of hand. But um, mm. no smoke without fire. I mean, we've, we've, since, we've since become friends again, or at least we can be pleasant when we're in the same room. But, yeah, that was a weird one, uh, yeah. especially when we are such a big fan of the band. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned, like, the rivalry, because... You know, it was such a, there were so many bands at that time, weren't there? It was real, you know, bands dominating the charts. There were so many good bands to go and see for the likes of me and Rich. Um, you know, and Pigeon Detectives, music certainly seemed everywhere at that point. If it was on TV, in between us, you guys were on Soccer AM a lot, weren't you, back in the day? We had the Rifles yeah. Boys on uh, a few weeks ago, and they, were, they obviously used to do that show quite a bit. Yeah, Soccer AM, Gavin Stacey and EastEnders, we were like yeah, yeah. regulars. I think Gavin <laughs> Stacey probably bought me a high-end mountain bike the amount of times they played us sure <laughs> you know jay's called on a pint next time he's bumping to him then <laughs> and i know you're big leeds fans as well off that soccer am comment um i know this is jumping a few years down the line but um tell us about this uh, end of season awards gig at leeds where it, you ended up playing or chilino ended up playing guitar with you boys at the end of your show strange character man so <laughs> yeah. he moved to leeds um, and he was uh, into playing guitar, into, you know, guitar. And uh, he used to put a festival on at his um, big mansion in Sardinia. Uh, so he just got in touch with somebody at Leeds United and just said he wanted to go rehearse with the band. So I think Kaiser Chiefs probably uh, were reached too far and they came down the pecking order, got to us, and they were like, can the new owner of Leeds United come to rehearsal rooms and jam? First, what the fuck? He was like, Yeah, I'll pay for all your rehearsal rooms, you know, it'll, I'll take you all out for tea and a drink. And we thought, Okay, this is cool. Yeah, of course. The guy turns up, he's an absolute lunatic, but he's given us all the inside gossip on Leeds United. So we kind of wanted him to hang around. And, you know, it was a bit, pretty big deal in Leeds at the time. Mm. And then, you know, next minute, the same fixer that got him into our rehearsal rooms for a jam, you know, you know, Chilina wants to play end of play season awards at Ellen Road. You know, will you back him on stage? And they said, so we're like, well, what's the dance? You know, what's in it for us? It's all, well, you get a full table at the Players' Awards. We'll give you a box to a couple of games next season. Again, that working class Northern uh, string in us, uh, both for note. And we were like, yep, yeah, count us in, we'll go. Free game, free food, you know. So that's how that came about. But would I do it again? Absolutely not. Did I like him as a person? Absolutely not. Was it one of the cringiest things we've ever done? Absolutely, yes. But as I say, free food. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, a, a good story, though. A very good story. Interesting one. Um, so we mentioned how those two albums, they came in pretty uh, quick succession. But after that, uh, the band took a breather in 2008. And so we're going to take a quick breather here, Matt. And uh, when we come back, we'll get into what came next. We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. 
Discover how we're helping members save at usaa.com slash bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply. Hi, this is Matt from the Pigeon Detectives, and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast where we're joined by Matt, the lead singer of the Pigeon Detectives. Now, Matt, at the end of part one, Rich mentions you guys took a break after releasing those first two albums in quick succession. Um, I guess it must have been quite tricky, though, to hit pause when it's all going so well, but you obviously felt like you needed a break. Uh... Not everybody in the band felt like they needed a break, but some people did. Um, and yeah, it was for their kind of health or their um, wellness of mind that we decided to just take our foot off the accelerator. Um, you know, people hadn't been home for months or on end. And if you were home, you, you know, you were there for less than 48 hours in a way. It suited some of us, me being one of them, um, but you know, other people, it got a bit too much and we were never going to consider um, going out as a four piece or um, replacing anybody even for temporary um, so yeah, we just um, down tools and just said to the people that needed a rest, take as long as you need. Um, the band doesn't go on without you, but at the same time, if it never went on again, we've done what we've done. Chill out, mm. take it easy, no pressure, do what you've got to do. Does that come from being such good mates initially starting the band that you were all in it together, really? Mm, <laughs> probably not. There was some real choice words. Right. Um, you know, we cancelled the sold out Australian tour we've never been back to Australia since so we've never been to Australia um, you know we were given some big opportunities to do with the Champions League and you know we were turning down shows which would put a deposit on a house these days so yeah it wasn't uh, it wasn't all hugs kisses <laughs> and high fives but at the end of the day you know the fact that we are five best mates means when all said and done um, and everyone's had the, the 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 tantrum, you know. We do what's best for each other. We do what's best, you know, as a group. So, um, it was the third album that did come eventually. Uh, recorded in Brooklyn, New York, two thousand and ten. Uh, released in April twenty eleven. Almost pretty much ten years ago now. That one, uh, Up Gars and Atom. Um, so did that time help? Did it, was it good to have that bit of time to build towards that album and also you know get out and record in New York? We pulled a fucking blinder there, didn't we? Record the world. Where do we go record? I think they thought we were going to say, nah, Dublin, nah. <laughs> good studios in Reading, because we've done the last one in Wales. We were like, the only place we're recording is New York. If you can't deliver New York, you know, we don't, we're not interested in the third album. Uh, yeah, and then they're like, well, how long do you think it'll take? Four weeks? Nah, probably eight. You know, we want to be a bit experimental. So, yeah, we had their eyes out there, like, but, you know. You win some, you lose some. We've lost more than we've won when it comes to kind of money and finances uh, in this game. So we were happy to win that one. Um, yeah, it was, again, I don't want to sound um, so negative on what's been the best experience of my life, but it's a difficult album to write again because it was a let's sit down and write an album. Um, some of our best songs have always come accidentally. So to sit down and try and um, come up with themes for songs, concepts for songs, you know, directions for the music to go in for me it's not the fun part of it you know I like to be out on stage I like to be you know going to the after show parties kind of swinging my mic having fun um but when you're 50% the songwriter and you know you've got to come up with all the lyrics can't be doing that all the time so um, it was a tricky one to write again but the recording process I think was probably 
my favourite eight weeks ever of being in the band. So I've been over in, over in New York, no distractions, no gigs on the horizon. Um, we were sharing this apartment, first of all, in Chelsea in Manhattan, uh, and then we went over to Brooklyn. So yeah, that was probably the purest eight weeks of being in a band since before we got signed. Um, yeah, it was just us over there, you know, on a different time zone to everybody. Uh, yeah, it was cool. Definitely, definitely my favourite time in the band recording in New York. Yeah, amazing. Um, did you feel like, obviously, after having that break, that the band had moved into the next phase? And also, I guess, like the you know the indie scene, I guess you could call it, moving from that 2007, 2008 period where it was really booming, it, it again changed by that point, hadn't it, by 2011 when the album came out. Did you feel that shift in the band? Um I don't know. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. So if you, if you, you know, you change your style and you sound too much, you piss people off. If you stick to a, you know, winning formula, you piss people off. And as you say, there was a heavy shift. Um, you know, indie music was no longer king, really, just at the point we were going to record that album and release that album. So we would, we knew we were on a hide into nothing in terms of trying to repeat the success of the first two albums. So it was kind of, I don't know if the pressure was off or... You know, there was added pressure. I'd have to sit down and think about it. But we, cert- we were certainly aware of a shift in the music landscape. Um, and we were just going to, you know, appreciate every single minute that we were in New York. You know, we felt we were looking to a third record. Um, and we weren't even thinking if there was going to be a fourth or a fifth. And obviously, you took that fourth what? record. That was back to Leeds, wasn't it, for that fourth one? So what was the thinking there after enjoying that New York experience so much to maybe take it back to basics a little bit with back in the hometown? No, no, not at all. We no. um we planned to go back to New York for the fourth record. It's just <laughs> <laughs> the way it works out. There were was there at that point, Pete. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, uh, no, God's honest truth is a little bit getting back to the reason we took our foot off the gas um, after the second record. You know, people were just burning out a little bit, being away all the time. Um, so I think if we'd have gone away for another long period of time to do a fourth record, it just wouldn't work for some people. So we decided to have that kind of um, ability to be in a studio and then go into our own beds, go into our partners. Um, you know, a couple of, couple, of, couple of us were married at that point. So, yeah, that was just another necessity of holding the band together, recording a record in Leeds. And it worked for us. And do you know what? Um, some songs on that record that I think sonically... Um, some of my most pleasing you know there's some real horrid guitars on there which I'm always here for horrid guitars Um, (laughs) you know really yeah sonically uh, and even kind of melodically that fourth record's got some of my favourite stuff on Is that because you guys had developed by that point you were better musicians than when you would start out perhaps? I was about the same musically I was just as bad on guitars as I'd always been but luckily (laughs) uh, I don't know but yeah, the lads, you know, Brian, our guitarist, never set out to be a guitarist. We asked him if he wanted to play guitar because he owned one um, and he was our best mate. But by the time we came to the fourth record, he was probably better than our lead guitarist was on our debut record. You know, he'd, he'd come on leaps and bounds. So yeah, as, as a unit, um, do you know as well, I don't think there's many bands that'll be tighter than us because um, we play gigs at 100 mile an hour. Um, you know, frantic pace, we're throwing each other all over the place. So when we come into a studio, um, you know, the amps are all stood still and there isn't a fucking crazy long-haired lunatic running around swinging your mic and throwing water in your face. The, you know, the guitarists are like, this is brilliant. Yeah, give me some of this any day of the week. And, you know, they're all cracking musicians. Our drummer is 
the best drummer I've ever seen in life. God's honest truth, like, honestly, I've seen some brilliant drummers and I, I still watch our drum and think, fuck, you know, we got lucky there. Oh, incredible. So that was, um, we met at sea, that, was, that came out in 2013 and you followed that up with Broken Glances in 2017, which is also the same year that you toured um, Wait For Me on its 10th anniversary. So a, a big sort of contrast then between, you know, where, where it all started and, and where you got to was, what was touring that album like, you know, 10 years on? It was good. Um, some of the lyrics I felt hadn't aged as well as they could, but you're going to get that. Um, you know, there were some lyrics on there. We were in the rehearsal rooms and we were like, are we getting away with singing this? You know, like I'm 30 plus years old, you know, we're not the 19 year old kids that wrote these songs. Are we getting away with this? And we were like, look, we've got to be true to the songs. Um, so it was interesting. I mean, the crowd reaction was humbling. Um, the ticket sales were humbling. Um, you know, the love people had for the album 10 years after its release. Uh, were humbling you know we were meeting people after the shows in bars that had got married and they'd met at the first time they'd come to see us on the first tour you know they had four and five year old kids now um so yeah it was uh it was a real positive experience that um i, I think the album's just a real positive part of our lives that you know we'll always hold dear so to go out and put it on the, on the road again it's pretty special and i mean I think when all said and done and we eventually stopped playing and we eventually stopped kind of touring, that, the one thing that would probably drag us back out of time would be, you know, a 20-year anniversary, 25-year anniversary, a 30-year anniversary, somebody needing to pay a tax bill, you know, those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, so 2027 or 2037, 2047, keep a note in the diary for the... There you go, <laughs> um, but what about new stuff um, any, anything lined up to follow on with this, this tour with new music as well probably not from a pitching technique's point of view um, the one thing we've always said is we're never going to force it again mm-hmm. so we're never going to sit in a room and say have you written anything that we can work on um, oh, I've got you know we're never going to really force it again I mean I've got a back catalogue of songs um, that I'm itching to get out in some capacity and I hope it's through the pitching detectives but I think I'll probably you know we'll have to be around my house for a barbecue and I'll pick the guitar up and I'll start playing them and you know Jimmy might start banging on the table you know it'll, it'll just need to be like a, come around my house I've got some songs what do you think you know we're never going to get into that let's release an album okay we need 10 songs we've got no songs let's go we're never going to get into that kind of formulaic um pressure cooker situation of having to write an album we need to find enough songs that we could just go in a studio tomorrow and record it so that's down to me and ollie the songwriters you know i'm happy if ollie came and said i've got five songs do you want to record an album i'd say well i've got these five songs let's go but you know i think it could be a way off unfortunately enough but it's like like you said earlier about having that um, preferring that process of it just coming naturally rather than being forced upon you that right now we have to record and go into a studio and get it all sorted. But, you know, as you say, if they, if they come, if they flow out of you naturally and it all comes together naturally, then I'm sure that'll make for a, a much better record. Yeah, exactly. Nail there. Nice one, man. Well, let's get into the encore, our final three questions for you to round this off. Um, and we're going to start with uh, your tribute to Avril Lavigne. And tell us about this one, the Girlfriend cover for Live Lounge. Absolute classic Live Lounge entry, if you don't mind me saying. Tell us, how did this one come about? We've done um, Live Lounge twice 
And on both occasions, we've been given kind of three or four songs that were really relevant or current or, you know, on heavy rotation at the time that they wanted us to cover. So it wasn't always so much uh, us picking a song out of the air and deciding to cover it. We were given a few options. Um, we were told we were going to be on three days before we were on. And we literally just thought, you know, what can, what can I sing? So that was the first one. Um, and that kind of had that shouty, hey, hey, you, you. Um, so we decided, yeah, we could do that. Um, and then we just started playing through, learning it. Going, it honestly, the first time we ever nailed it 100% uh, was when we did it live. You know, we'd messed it up repeatedly. Um, you know, getting all the, hey, hey, you, you, because they were doing the backing vocal. Nightmare. But it just seemed to be this, um, you know, running on adrenaline, you know, it'll be all right on the night type attitude that we had at the time. Uh, I love that cover. I mean, we, we actually got told off um, by Joe Wiley because I was meant to bleep out um, motherfucking girlfriend. <laughs> and we were going to do uh, um, I'm your motherfucking girlfriend. And then just in the heat of the battle, I just, I'm your motherfucking girlfriend. And I, I said more of the letters in the in the word than I bleeped out. So Joe Wiley came back and said, we're very sorry for the, uh, the use of the inappropriate language there. <laughs> well, yeah, the Black no, is a great experience. I mean, you know, all our parents are tuned in. Um, everyone from schools tuned in. Uh, you know, everyone from the local villages tuned in. Um, it's, it's a good experience. Yeah, I you learn a lot about it. yourself. You know, knowing ten million people are listening. Yeah, that's a test, isn't it? Absolutely. Even to today, I can't hear Joe Wiley's name without going Joe Joe Wiley. Will you be my girlfriend? A bit at the end, yeah. love it. Yeah. Again. <laughs> I didn't even know that was happening. You know, the lads had had their own little rehearsal on the backing vocals. Um, and yeah, they decided to do that at the you know, 11th hour and in it went. Yeah, I love it. Live Lounge Classic. Um, ne- next up in the encore, Matt, I wonder if you could pick out the best gig the Pigeon Tech has ever done. What's been your favourite? Um, I think the first time we ever played Leeds Festival, we uh, printed off about 2,000 flyers and we went out before the gig to hand them out into the crowd because we were adamant, you know, we wanted to have the tent at least half full. Um, you know, we were people hadn't heard of us yet. You know, we, you know, we were going to be playing in our hometown at Leeds Festival. We'd always dreamt of doing it. There'd be nobody there. So we handed out all these flyers. Our girlfriends were handing out flyers and parents were, turns out we walked on the stage and it was 10 deep outside the tent. Um, so we maybe just not gauged the hype that was around us at the time. Um, and that was the, first and only time we've ever walked out onto stage and kind of gone oh and yeah I kind of look at each other and gone um so that was probably my favorite that was I think I felt like that's when we were sure we'd arrived and we belonged there and you know we weren't gonna have to go back to these awful jobs that we all hated yeah key moment yeah and in terms of the music uh final question on the encore final question of the podcast really what's the song you're proudest of probably I'm not sorry um, it's probably the closest we got to a collaboration in terms of writing. Um, and, you know, it was something that just happened spontaneously. Ollie had this little idea. I picked it up, took it off him, wrote the lyrics there. And then in the rehearsal room, um, you know, all the lads just joined in organically. Um, we had a few arguments over where the big stop should be, whether there should be three or four. Um, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. Other than that, the song wrote itself. Uh, and it's bought all five of us a house and it's the song we end every gig on. Um, so yeah, it's probably the song I'm most proud of. Fine choice, fine choice. Brilliant, Matt. Thanks so much for giving us your time today. It's been really fascinating to hear the, the Pigeon Detective story and uh, yeah, very much everything crossed that we get you back on stage soon where you belong. 
thanks guys and it's been a while since I did an interview so uh, thanks for having me on made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply.